data these days. Whether the topic is technology, government surveillance, public policy, corporate marketing, or social science research. In this episode of the Down to a Science podcast, I talk to a person who studies people who do data science. We discuss what this mysterious thing called data science actually is. The texts and practices that it comprises, the tools of the trade, things like data cleaning and metadata, these exciting, mundane topics can tell us about the nature of data science, what it is and what it could be. Today's guest will primarily be talking about data science in academic environments, such as the one she studies at the University of Washington. But the insights on the nature and potentials of data science are not necessarily strictly limited to the academic sphere. So let's get to it. Today, we'll be hearing from Brittany Fiore Garland. I am the Director of Data Science Ethnography at the eScience Institute. I'm also a research scientist in Human-Centered Design and Engineering Department. From the eScience Institute website, our mission is to engage researchers across disciplines in developing and applying advanced computational methods and tools to real-world problems in data-intensive discovery. Basically, it's a place for researchers of all different types to think about data science methods together. Now, Fiore Garland studies these researchers and data scientists ethnographically, spending extended amounts of time with them and their day-to-day work lives in order to understand their practices and points of view and context. Ethnographers often spend a year or years with their communities of study, and Fiore Garland has so far been at the eScience Institute as a resident ethnographer for over three years. But while it might be relatively easy to imagine an ethnographer traveling to some region of the world, distant from where you are, to learn about how people live and eat and sleep, it might be harder to imagine what a data science ethnographer would do exactly. What do they have to look at? What can be learned from watching someone just sit at their computer for hours on end? Um, I often get that question from people who I'm observing. They think, how could I, how could this possibly be interesting? You know, I'm just sitting here at my computer. Just to give you a sense, um, understanding enough about the kinds of software that they're using helps me understand what they're doing. And I also have them think aloud a little bit about, at least give me a sort of, what are they going to start working on, or what did they just switch to, or what problem are they, you know, kind of driving at. And And so in, in this situation, to just try to get a picture of it, they're sitting at their desk or at a table or something. It's kind of an open office set up out here, and you just kind of pull up a chair behind them? Yeah, I'll okay. do that, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, you know, I probably most most of my observations are of are sort of focused around data science collaborations. And so I'm often observing people working together, which might mean they're sitting next to one another and just on their on their computers. It could mean that they're, you know, they have some conversations um, or they go to the whiteboard and they sort of map something out. They um, they map a process out and then they, you know, go back to their computers or they, you know, they hit a stumbling block and they sort of, they move in and out of sort of conversation and, um, and work in, you know, on their screens. For data scientists, a lot of what they have to do is clean their data. This theme came up a lot in talking with Fiore Garland. The idea that data can be messy or clean. I asked her to give me a sense of what messy data was like. Any of the data science for social good projects would be good examples. The Orca 
project, for instance, uh, got data from our sort of regional transport system here. Uh, there's payment system data that that's data collected for to reflect these transactions. Uh, they want to use this data to understand patterns in ridership and other kinds of transportation questions about things about you know inequality of um, transportation, uh, public transportation access. And they, I think, spent most of the summer, this is a summer program, the Data Science for Social Good program. They spent, you know, the majority of the summer cleaning the data, meaning making it usable or intelligible for queries or to actually be able to do any kind of analysis with that data. Not only was there difficulties in different systems and syncing, you know, locations and timestamps and those that, you know, that kind of messiness, but a sort of concern that, you know, what that data might seem to represent isn't necessarily, you know, the the cash customers, you know, aren't being counted within this data. And what does that mean about, you know, what any kind of analysis you might do in terms of ridership or these different kinds of populations or and how might you go about actually constructing a more representative kind of data set or making it more intelligible for the kinds of analyses that you want to do and so like that whole process of well, figuring out what your questions are and what this data even can potentially represent if there's anything you can you know add to it or adjust for it or clean in a way that's going to make it, you know, easier to look across different routes or different populations. The fundamental challenge is that with so much of data science, especially um, data science for social good, but just in a lot of data science endeavors, it's a secondary use of data. So the data was collected for one purpose and now it's being, it's it, they're trying to leverage it for another purpose. And with that comes enormous challenges because you know, it, it wasn't actually curated for the kinds of questions that you're asking. And I think that actually demonstrates a lot of like the ways in which data really are sort of harbor that those kinds of interpretive structures and to begin with. Um, and then we make you know further interpretations with that data. Data is not just something that's out there. It's something that has interpretive frameworks already built into it, produced by certain arrangements of people, things, and technologies. When I think about data like this, I like to think about cows. Say you have a cow and you want to do something with it. There are any number of ways that you can raise the cow or cut up the cow, but it all depends on what you want to do with it. Even if you've decided you wanted to eat it, what parts of the cow are useful is highly dependent on if you want steak or hamburger or something else. But it goes beyond this, because the thing about both cows and data is that neither exist in the wild. Cows as we know them, their bodies, their weight, and their number, exist in relation to human purposes and structures. We've selectively bred cows, and their bodies, their increasing weight, speak to the context of their creation. Bigger cows gain more profit, and in our capitalist, industrial economy, we have the biggest cows in history. Similarly, data don't exist in the world to be scooped up. They have to be created through various methods of collection. 
and can't ever be fully separated from that context of creation. Now, as an exercise for dedicated listeners, debate how far this metaphor of data and cows can or can't go. You can email me about it. But moving on, we see this point about data in context again, as Fiore Garland tells me about cleaning data. Yeah, people often talk about cleaning data and use that term, and so I've sort of taken it up, and I I remember being puzzled by it in the beginning. What do they mean by that? What clean data for and because, especially because there's not some standard cleaning practice, you know. Mm. I mean, there are common things you might do across, you know, data sets to clean them, but what cleaning means for different kinds of data science endeavors is really different and so it's actually a very it's like a targeted cleaning, you know, it's there's a reason that you're clean, you're making it intelligible for a particular question or audience. I also just love the idea of it sort of being the opposite of, of messy. When, when people deal with data, it's always messy. Even when they think it's clean, it's messy. The other reason that you hear people talk about data cleaning is that data cleaning is about you know, 80% of data science. That's certainly people's experience, and I think that's an important piece of, of recognizing, you know, what the actual work of data science looks like is that, you know, to get to those, all that kind of fancy, sexy analysis that people sort of imagine data science is, at least in, in industry, there's 80% of, of, of that work to actually um, even get there and you know and then you're sort of making data into something that is recognizable to some kind of analysis framework some kind of algorithm some something some kind of model something that you want to be able to query and to ask questions of so what does it actually look like one thing that we recognized is that it can often look like talking to people Often something in the data that you're looking at doesn't make sense. You know, there's an anomaly, there's a trend or a timestamp where the data looks like this bus route is actually in the ocean. It just just things you don't you wouldn't expect or you don't understand. And that often requires a conversation with someone who does. That's where this sort of importance of the people who know the data intimately, they know, and they know the stuff that the data refers to, right? They know, you know, they're out in the field, they understand the particular domain and and context. And that's the kind of knowledge and experience that, that someone needs to tap into in order to often to sort of to clean the data or to, you know, understand what it is they're looking at so that they can then structure it in, in different ways. I mean, a good example is an oceanographer who was working with data from different cruises had found that in the data there was, they were collecting about certain biochemical kinds of things in the water. Anyway, but th- there was something that was off in, in between the different cruises and sh- and she couldn't really make sense of it. She wanted to figure out what was causing this jump 
how should she adjust her analysis of the data set and she couldn't find it sort of in the data. She had to go talk to the person who was in charge of the instruments on the cruises and in talking to him learned that the instrument sensitivity had been adjusted and so then you know she realized that how that adjustment actually would impact the analysis of her results and could calibrate you know accordingly that kind of data provenance and and the context around what the data that she was looking at you know she couldn't have deciphered that from just looking at the data or whatever she had to go talk to someone not all context can be represented. So, you know, we like to think that you put some data out there and if you put enough metadata around it, that whoever wants to kind of come use that data for whatever purpose will be able to because there's all this metadata. And what is metadata? Um, Data about data. (laughs) It's sort of information that tells you, it could be so many different things, but just something that gives you information about that data. So it could be, you know, when it was collected, how it was collected, the instrument that collected it, the, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, the temperature, blah, 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 blah you know, mm-hmm. the, the weather outside when mm-hmm. it was collected. So you'd like to think if you just include enough metadata. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's somewhat impossible uh, in, in, in the extreme sense, because I, what I see again and again is people coming to go use that data for some other purpose. And when you actually have a particular question, it is more often than not, there's not enough information there or it's not quite the right data to to actually serve, to actually just be able to be figured out in one swoop, like just looking at the data. Even with good documentation, you often still need to talk to the person, ask them a question. The question is, especially in the academic community, you know, how much is it worth it to invest in anticipating all the different possible use cases when that's not something that is necessarily pushing you towards your particular research goal. Fury Garland draws a parallel between the problem of good enough documentation and the reproducibility movement, in which scientists try to make sure that their work can be done by someone else with the same results. Reproducibility is something that has a long history sort of at the core of what science is. That's one version of reproducibility is just that someone would be able to actually repeat your experiment and get the same results. There's also another understanding of it, which is someone would be able to basically get the same results by a different data set or a different method. And then there's these other questions then, you know, here what we have at eScience is more is a concern around um, computational reproducibility that is pretty central. So that would mean assuming your, your science is done through your software that you have a way to reproduce those results. You have enough kind of documentation that someone could read your paper and go and run your code and, you know, be able to reproduce computationally your results. And, of course, that comes with its own issues. And is that not, is not, not a thing that happens? Or is that not possible? Or As you can hear, I was actually surprised by this. It seemed counterintuitive to me that reproducibility was a problem in data science, where your instruments are rigid, rule-following computers, 
and not the fussy devices of the natural sciences, like air pumps and things that expand in heat or gases that easily leak. But, of course, I learned otherwise. Sometimes the computational kind of setup requires different kinds of things to be installed and configured in such a way that you could run the software. So a computer is not just a computer, right? Um, if, if that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, yeah. Like, it is a very complex... If you can think about it like different layers that are all dependent upon one another, so you have, like, your computer and then and your, your operating system, and then you have, you know, each kind of layer on top of that that then has all these other dependencies. And so you don't know what the, the sort of software set and, and hardware setup of someone who comes to your paper to read it and tries to reproduce it. You don't know what, you know, what their layers look like. It's hard to an- anticipate even how to sort of give them enough documentation to construct that kind of similar arrangement. It's all those layers and all those dependencies. Um, that said, there are, people do it in really simple ways, like, and there are tools out there that people are working on, especially across the data science environment, that are a way to kind of, like, group and package those dependencies so that someone, anyone, could sort of open them, you know, and, and sort of run that. And that's where I think the technical solutions have really focused. But for Fiari Garland, reproducibility is not just a technical problem demanding a technical solution. It's a problem of scientific communication. A lot of people have talked about code as a, as a language, and I think that can be a powerful metaphor for talking about some of the challenges with reproducibility because there's a scientific communication problem and how we value that communication process within science is, I think, is a big question. Does that communication piece, which is work, which is a lot of work, does that get to be part of what we call science and what we get valued for. If we really value communicate scientific communication, we really think about it as part of the scientific process, then it would it also mean that we we might start to do science differently too. And I think that would probably be a good thing in a lot of cases. You seem to be talking about how you can't just rely on documentation or metadata to understand the context of your data. So I guess I'm asking how much human interaction is necessary in data science? Is it always necessary? Or is data science more uh, of a social type of process, whether it's in industry or academia, than people might think? Or is the stereotype of someone alone in the dark on a computer, does that ring true to you in your experience? I really think it's, it's both and. There's a lot of solo work that needs to be done. In fact, like, a lot of people talk about how this environment, this open working environment can be great, but for them to really get something done, they they need to go away, they need to step away and, you know, really put their head down and, you know, I, I, I'm the same way. What, what I was talking about in terms of the reproducibility thing is like another level of of what I mean by sort of the social nature of data science, which is that sort of data themselves are social and they're embedded in some kind of social context there are humans and technologies and infrastructures you know that are that make data and for us not to you know recognize their part in making data is dangerous if if only because we will have a high likelihood of sort of misinterpreting 
the data are social to begin with. Um, too often they they are imagined as something that's that really is just sort of like only accessed through a computer screen and especially when it's like a secondary use of data and you haven't actually collected the data, you don't have a sense of how it's made or an embodied sense of, of what that data refers to. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that like most of the time <laughs> data scientists are going to talk to people. I think that would be like my, um, I would love that. <laughs> but uh, no. I, I just mean that it, it happens maybe more often than you might think. Sometimes it seems to be the solution after a whole lot of banging their head against the wall. Um, it often provides sort of the breakthrough, like, oh, I could just talk to someone, and then there's this simple explanation, right? Um, instead of doing all this kind of fancy, fancy stuff. I don't think we encourage it enough. Brittany Fiore Garland is Director of Data Science Ethnography at the eScience Institute and Research Scientist in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington. Today's episode included music from Pottington Bear and Scott Holmes via the Free Music Archive. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Lily Ye. Thanks for listening to Down to a Science, the Castac podcast.